You know, last week I shared that as we begin this new year, there's probably no better chapter to begin a new year with than um, Matthew chapter 16. And the reason being is that in this chapter, there are certain topics that define who we are as a church. And so last week uh, I mentioned that it's going to be in this chapter that begins a new section in this gospel. So uh, we've, we've looked at Jesus' early ministry. We're going to begin now pointing towards the cross. Jesus is going to be moving from where he's been in the northern part of Israel. And we'll begin seeing him move down to, the, to uh, Jerusalem where the crucifixion will take place. But in this chapter, there are going to be some firsts. So for instance, this will be the first time that the word church is mentioned, the first time Jesus lays out his death, his burial, his resurrection. And so we'll talk about that when we come to it. Last week, we mentioned how Jesus is in a discussion and he tells the Pharisees and the Sadducees that you haven't been able to discern the times. And uh, we talked about discerning the times, and as we define our church, that's one of the things that, that we, we, take, uh, we, we take time to do, is to discern the time that we live in and to look at what the Bible says, uh, certain Bible prophecies. This week, Jesus is going to have a, a discussion on faith, and so we're going to talk about that. I believe that in 2018, you and I as individuals are going to be called to to not just believe in God, but to actually believe God, to step out in faith and grow in our relationship with Him. We're going to be called to do that as individuals, as a church. We're going to be called to do that as we continue to, to step forward, trusting God for all that He wants to do in the life of this church. Later on in this chapter, we're going to talk about how Jesus chooses to build His church, and I think there'll be some surprises there. And then after that, the chapter closes out with what does it really mean from Jesus' perspective to be a follower of his. And so we'll look at that as we go. So the big challenge each week is what do you leave in and, and what do you leave out? So a uh, lot that we, more that we could say, and, and uh, so that's, that's a challenge. So hopefully we'll get enough that it'll make sense. Now last week we began in uh, chapter, chapter 16, verse 1. I'm going to start there today. It says, the Pharisees and the Sadducees came up testing Jesus, and they asked him how, uh, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. And one of the comments that I made is that the Pharisees and the Sadducees were two groups within Judaism. They were both Jewish, but that's as far as their affiliation went. They, they were as distant as they could be, as pro-life and pro-choice. They were enemies one of another, but they've come together because they have a common enemy, and that enemy is Jesus. And so you'll recall last week, uh, Jesus talked to them about not being able to discern the times. The very last line of verse 4 it says he left them and went away. So there's no more discussion with them. And then verse 5 and 6, we pick that up today, and it says, and the disciples came to the other side of the sea. That would be the Sea of Galilee, which you know is just a big freshwater lake. But they had forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, watch out and beware for the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So as, as we go, the first thing that Jesus says, and this would be very important for defining who we are as a church, he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now in the Bible, leaven is always, when it's used as a symbol, is always a symbol of corruption. It's, it's never used as a positive symbol. And uh, so here what we're going to find, I'll give you the punchline and then we'll unpack it. So what Jesus is saying, and I want you to write this down, he tells his disciples essentially the corruption of the Pharisees would be to avoid the, the two extremes of one, legalism, 
and liberalism. So we'll talk about that. Now, the Pharisees were the legalists, and um, they what they would do, um, their corruption would be that they would add standards to what the Bible actually said, and they judged people whether they kept their standards or not, even though the Bible didn't even speak of those things. So when you define a legalist, and you've heard me say this before, I want you to write this down, but a legalist is somebody who has a legal list. A legal list. They have a list of the things that you should and should not do, and uh, most of all they go beyond what the Bible says. Another time Jesus was speaking in Luke's gospel there in your outline, and it says, Jesus replied and says, you experts in the law, woe to you because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry. So they would, they would go beyond what the Bible said, and they would have standards beyond, and then they would judge people to keep their standards. And so they would make people feel very unspiritual if they, they didn't keep that. So, so how, how would that be in the church today? I grew up, my, my first church experience, um, I was born a Catholic, at least that's what it says on my birth, uh, my birth uh, certificate. Um, my mom married a Baptist, and so I went to church for the first time at a Baptist church. And that's where I got, as we would say, I got saved. And um, but in that church, if you were to be a member of that church, you had to sign a covenant. And the covenant went something like this. If you're going to be a member of this church, there will be no dancing, no movies, no playing cards, no smoking, and no alcohol, not even a glass of wine. Any of you come from a, a church background like that? Okay, a couple of us. And uh, so what would take place, now if somebody did those things, we might look on and say, well, they might be saved, but if they do any of those things, then they're clearly backslidden. I mean, how can you play cards? I mean, there you are as a Christian and you're playing cards and you're like, got any twos? Go fish, <laughs> you, know? you know? I mean, how wicked can it get, right? So, so um, you know, the, the Bible, t- so, so we would judge people not by what the Bible said, but by standards that we had set up that the Bible doesn't talk about. The Bible does say, don't be a drunk, uh, but it doesn't say that you can never have a glass of wine. Now, some people can never have a glass of wine, and so, but you don't want to set that up as, as, a, as a standard for somebody else. So if you hold to some of those positions as a personal conviction, that's fine. But when you judge somebody else by your extra biblical standards, then you are in the camp of a fair. And so here at Calvary we seek to not add to what the Bible says and just stick with what it says. So that would be the legalist. Now on the other hand you have what we would call the Sadducees or the theological liberals, uh, liberalism. There in your outline, if you were to go to Webster, Webster would say liberalism is a movement in modern Protestantism emphasizing the intellectual liberty and the spiritual and ethical content of Christianity. Well, what does that mean? Well, what that would mean would be as you, you look at the Bible, and there are certain theologians in, uh, in the past 100, 150 years um, who would look at it, the Bible and they say, you know, um, the, we read the miracles, but you know, as we read those miracles, 
we, we would say that those things are more allegorical. They didn't really take place. What you really want to get is the essence of Christianity, which is the you know love people, that sort of thing. But you can't really believe the, the, the miracles. Well, that's what the, the, the Pharisees would be. Ethically, uh, a theological liberal would say, you know, they had certain standards back there in that Middle Eastern culture, and certainly. So when it talked about what marriage was and marriage wasn't, and, and certain moral positions, that was something then, but this is 2018, so you can't really, really trust that. No, that would be theological liberalism. So how were the, Fer- or how were the Sadducees uh, theological liberals? There in your outline, it says, For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, neither angel nor spirit, uh, but the Pharisees, on the other hand, they confess both. So um, they, they didn't believe in things like the resurrection, the angels, and all the other things that the Bible talked about. They said, well, that's good, it's, it's allegorical, it's there to convey a message, but we don't really believe that those things happen. And, and so they were called Sadducees. They don't believe in the resur- resurrection, so they were sad, you see. And uh, that's how you know. So now, they did accept the first five books of the Bible, but, but not the rest. So they didn't believe in the miracle stories, they didn't believe in God's intervention and things like that. So if, if you look at the Bible today, like the Sadducees, and you say, well, I look at some of those things, but I, really, I, you know, I don't really embrace that. For instance, let's say um, Jesus speaks a number of times about how the creation took place, and he was involved in the creation, he's the creator, and that it was done in six days, and, and on the seventh day God rested, and that comes right from Jesus. And you go, well, you know, I know he says that, but you know, we're, we're more enlightened now, we know a whole lot more. Yes, we get that Jesus is God, but we know more than, than that, and so we now believe in another process that the whole creation story that's you know, to convey a, uh, a, an idea, but you can't really hold that as truth, well then you would be in the camp of the Sadducees. If you're here today and you say, you know, I know Jesus in Matthew 24 says that it, it will be just the same as it was in the days of Noah. There was a worldwide flood. Destruction came, destroyed them all. You say, but I, you know, I don't really believe that that actually happened. Or maybe you know, it's a story to convey a point, but it didn't actually happen. Then you would be part of the Sadducees. If uh, you're here today and you read all the places where Jesus talks about hell, and Jesus talked about hell more than just about any other subject. Some people say he talked about hell more than any other subject, but you say, and he even says things like where the worm never dies, and uh, the, the thirst is never quenched, and things like that. But you, yeah, but you know, I don't know that I buy that. You know, how can a loving God? And, and so you, you don't really believe that, then you'd be like the Pharisees. Uh, you, you, you don't really believe what it says. And so that, that's, you know, the, the camp. So here, at Calvary, we seek to avoid, one, legalism going beyond what the Bible says. And on the other hand, we take the Bible very serious. And so you need to know that if this is your church home. This, this is who we are. So that helps to define us. So far, so good? Well, then, so Jesus says, I want you to avoid the corruption, the leaven of the, both the Pharisees and then the Sadducees. And then in verse 7 it says, so how do they respond? They began to discuss, and I underline the word discuss, this among themselves saying, he said that because we did not bring any bread. So immediately the disciples, they hear about leaven and they start talking about we didn't bring any bread. What are we going to do for bread? Now uh, there's, there's a, a couple of things in here. First of all, I think the, um, the reason the disciples, and I'm, I'm a dad, so, you know, we have a bunch of kids and I've got some teenagers at home. And uh, one of the things that we forget is that most of Jesus' disciples were teenagers. 
and uh, we, many times we, we forget that. Many times we have certain theological positions that we hold because we've seen some picture or, or something like that, and we assume because the picture says this that it must be true. For instance, um, I come out after the Christmas Eve service a few weeks ago, and it's after the, the third service, and a guy comes up to me and he goes, I've been here a couple of years, every year you tell the Christmas story. He says, not one time, not one time have you ever mentioned the wise men, the magi. Why do you always leave that part out? And I say to him, well, in, in the Bible, the, the wise men, the magi, they don't show up for almost two years later. And he says, I never heard of such a thing. It's true. They don't show up for almost two years later. But because you drive through the neighborhood and you look at Christmas lights, you always see the manger story and what's always there. You got the magi. Well, and, and so we just assume that the magi are there that night. Now, how many of you never heard that the magi, the wise men, don't show up for probably two more years? A couple of Good. You learned something here today. We can just close in prayer and go home. You learned something. That's good. So, but many times our, our theological understanding comes from scenes that we've seen. You know, we drive through and we look at Christmas lights, and so we see that. Now, as it relates to the disciples, most of the disciples were in their teens, maybe their late teens. Peter's probably the, the oldest, maybe 21, 22. He's married at this point. Um, many theologians hold that John could be as young as 10 years old. But, but the truth is most of them, but here, here's why we believe that, they are, that they're like 40-year-old guys with beards, because we've all seen a picture somewhere, a painting, and the painting says they all have beards, and so we just assume they're 40-year-old guys, and that's where that comes from. But as you work through the scripture, you find out they're, they're, they're mostly teenagers. Jesus is the old guy in the group. So now having said that, I think personally, this is just Pastor Dan's vain reasonings, but because they're teenagers, Jesus talks about leaven, yeast, and they immediately start talking about food. And, uh, is, and parents, tell me if this works for you. For, so for instance, um, we went camping the first two weeks of the year. I don't recommend it with this many kids, but we did. And so we went, but before we went, Cheryl went shopping for food, and she bought, this food is for here before we go camping, and this food here is for when we go camping. Now, parents, do you know where this is going? So they ate the food for here, and then what happened? Then they ate the food for going camping, right? And, uh, and so, so now I, I wouldn't change it for anything, but I've noticed with my teenagers, it's like living with a plague of locusts 24 hours a day. It just, you know, if you don't want them to eat it, don't bring it home. Okay, so am I alone? I need some affirmation here. Is this, am I the only per- person who's ever experienced this? So anyways, again, I wouldn't change it. So, so Jesus says uh, that, that don't, don't get caught up in the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They immediately start thinking about food. So they are without food. Now what's also important as our story continues is that this is just a stuff of life story. This is a, not a story where somebody's going to die. Nobody needs to be raised from the dead. Nobody's going to file bankruptcy. It's just the stuff of life. We forgot to bring bread. It's not that big of a deal. We might get hungry, but we're per- certainly not going to starve to death. So um, another thing that I want to say about this, and I want you to write this down, is that this faith challenge is going to involve the whole group. It's going to involve the whole group. The Bible was written in what's called a collectivistic culture, which means that they held the importance of the group, which would be very different than you and I who live in a Western individualistic society culture where we look at the individual. 
So when we see a miracle story where it talks about believing, you will say, well, this is where I need to stand in faith, I need to trust, and I need to step out. And that's fine, that's good. But what we notice in the Gospels is that most of the miracles took place as a group. Jesus is going to address this to the group. When Jesus wanted to feed the 5,000 or the 4,000, he didn't say, Peter, go feed them. He had the entire group. The miracle was done through the group, not through the individual. There are times where God calls you to stand in faith as an individual, but there are also times where God calls the group to stand in faith. And I believe that this year we as a congregation are going to be called to stand as a group in faith for some of the things that God wants to do. So they realize that they have no bread, and so verse 7 it says they begin to discuss and I've underlined that word discuss, this among themselves saying, he said that because we did not bring any bread. Now Jesus is talking about yeast or leaven. They immediately start thinking about bread. It's two different things, but in their mind it's all food. So interesting, they begin to discuss. And I put that word there on your outline. The word discuss, some of your Bibles will say reason, is the word dialogue isomai. Does everybody see that? Dialogue isomai as, as the word. So the word dialogue is where we get our English word to dialogue. So they're discussing it. And when you define that word, it says to bring together different reasons, to reckon up the reasons, to reason, to revolve in one's mind, to deliberate. Now the reason I I say that is this is not an observation where they go, hey, you notice we didn't bring any food. It's something where they begin to discuss the fact that they don't have food. Why don't we have any food? Why don't we bring any food? Who forgot to bring the food? What are we going to do? Well, I'm getting hungry already. And they just begin to discuss this. And they go on and on and on. So what that means, and I want you to write this down, as a group they will rehearse the problem. They begin to rehearse the problem. And Jesus is going to let this go on for a while beyond just an observation. Uh, They're going to be discussing it. And uh, I always say they're rehearsing, nursing, and cursing the problem. They're building it up in their mind. So this goes on for a while. We don't know how long. Maybe 10, 15, 20 minutes. We really don't know. But they're, they're dialoguing the whole idea is that we don't have bread. And again, this is, this is not a somebody's going to die situation. This is just this is the stuff of life. But, verse 8, it says, Jesus, aware of this, said, You men of little faith. Now I've underlined little faith in my Bible and it says, you men of little faith, why do you discuss among yourselves that you have no bread? That you have no bread. And so what Jesus does here is that he stops this ongoing conversation where they are rehearsing the problem, going over it and over it and over it. And he reveals, and you want to go ahead and write this down, Jesus reveals that the problem isn't lack of bread here. In this story, the problem is going to be lack of faith. Uh, or little faith, however you want to say that. Lack of faith or little faith. You and I have been going through the Gospel of Matthew now for about a year. We've certainly seen a number of miracles, and these disciples have certainly seen many, many, many miracles. Now, we know and we're told that a whole lot more things happen than actually written. So the things that are written in the Bible are written to uh, bring us to a place where we can learn and we can grow but more things happen. So the disciples have seen quite a bit. You and I would think that by this time in their walk, when they faced this situation, that they would immediately say, not rehearsing the problem, but they'd say, oh, we're out of bread. I wonder what Jesus wants to do about it. What I appreciate about the disciples is that many times I find myself in the place of the disciples 
by this time in my walk, I should be saying, Lord, what do you want to do about this situation? But like the disciples, if I'm not careful, I can begin to rehearse the problem. So very sheepishly, am I alone in this? Okay, good. So a couple more people have have done this. So again, these stories are selected for us. Well, Jesus, on the other hand, in verse 8, he says, But Jesus, aware of this, said, You men of little faith, why do you discuss among yourselves the fact or that you have no bread? He's going to give three reasons why they might find themselves discussing why they have no bread. Verse 9, he says, Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets full you picked up? Or the seven loaves of the 4,000, how many large baskets you picked up. And, and so he, he gives two here, but I'm going to show you a third in a moment. So here's some possibilities why they might find themselves discussing the fact that they, they have no bread. Well, first of all, he says there in verse 9, he says, do you not yet understand? And uh, so you want to write this down, just they, they don't understand yet. They don't understand yet. Now I'm going to suggest that they will understand if they don't understand, but right now maybe they don't understand. The word understand there means to perceive with the mind, to understand, to think upon, to heed, to ponder, consider. Uh, The idea is that although they've seen the miracles, they have the God stories in the past, they haven't yet started connecting the dots. And several times we've seen as we've gone through the Gospel of Matthew, it will say something like, they still did not understand the meaning of the bread, of the boat, you know, the the waves and all that. And and so they, they haven't connected all the dots. And so many times I, I think that we find ourselves, there's some things that God has done, but maybe in a certain situation we begin to panic because like them, we haven't yet connected the dots. Now they will, they're growing, so that's a good thing, and hopefully we do. Verse 9, he says, do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves? So uh, maybe they, they didn't remember. So uh, I've, I have here on the outline, you want to write down, sometimes we forget what God has done. We forget what God has done. Jesus reminds them of a couple of things that that God has done. Uh, I I fed the 5,000. We all participated in that miracle, he would say. And you were there, and we had some leftovers, and that was a great thing. God really showed up. We fed the 4,000, and that was a great thing. And uh, those miracles specifically involve food, and that's what you're talking about there. So we have a, a track record here of God doing some things. They, in this time, if they've forgotten, they've also forgotten that God cares about their pressing needs. Uh, they've forgotten that God is the God of abundance because in those situations they didn't just feed everybody, they had leftovers. So, so God really did something. And so he, he's, he's certainly shown up in the past. So one, one of the things I, uh, Cheryl and I have done, we, we like, like you, have at times had our back against the wall. We're, we're in a situation and we don't know how it's going to work out. Uh, and so what we did years ago, and we still add to it, is we have a Word document in our computer, and we have written down all of the times that we can remember that God has shown up in our lives. And the reason that we do that is so that 
when our back is against the wall, we can pull that up and we can say, do you remember that time our back, this happened and that happened and, and we had no idea how this was going to happen, but we just sent you call us to step out this way and then out of nowhere this happened. And, and, and little things, little things. For instance, way decades ago, Cheryl was sitting at a light. Many of you had this experience. You're sitting at the light. There's a truck next to her. The light's red. The light turns green. She starts to go and there's this overwhelming sense. Everything inside of her says, stop. So she stops. And as she stops, a big truck goes barreling through the intersection. You ever had an experience like that? What was that? Well, I think that God showed up in that situation. But we've had a number of times, and you know, whether it's financial or, or illness or, or you know, whatever it is, where God has shown up in our life. So we write those things down so that when we find ourselves facing a situation, we can go back and we can remember what it is that God has done. I would encourage you, if you have some God stories, write them down, save them, pull them up from time to time, and remember what it is that God has done. Well, Luke says it, or, or Matthew says it this way, but this story is also told in Mark's gospel. But Mark adds a phrase that I find very interesting. When Mark tells the story, same story, he adds a line, he says, or do you have a hardened heart? a hardened heart. Now what's important here to understand when he says it, same disciples, same time, just that Mark adds a detail. I don't believe that these disciples have a hardened heart. Uh, Certainly God's going to call them to do great things. I think Jesus says this to them knowing that this is one of the stories that will be written down and will be read for for 2,000 years at least. And uh, so I think that Jesus says that not because he's thinking of them specifically, but he's thinking of believers in the future who will read. And many times we find that we forget because we have a hardened heart, even as believers. So there on your outline, that word harden, uh, you notice it's the word poruo, which comes from the word porous. You know, if something's porous, uh, something can get through. But in this case, nothing can get through. And uh, it means to petrify, to render stupid or callous. Uh, It means to cover with a callous. So a hard heart in this case would be not somebody who forgets, this is somebody who refuses to trust. And you want to write that down. Somebody who refuses to trust. Again, I think these stories are for us uh, who would read this after the fact. So if, if God comes to us and um, we're sensing him say we're in a difficult marriage and God comes and he speaks to us and he says, I want you to trust me in this situation or I, I want you to trust me if you're single with your relationships and there's that side where saying, no way, if I trust you I'll be old before anything ever happens and so we, we say, I won't trust or he comes to us and says, I want you to trust me in the area of finances. We say, oh, I can never trust you with that. Or he comes to us and says, I want you to trust me in the area of ministry. I want you to step out in this way. And we go, oh, I could never do that. And we begin to callous ourselves. Uh, he comes to us and says, this is the direction that I have for you. And we look on and we say, there's no way. And we begin to callous ourselves. Our hearts become hardened just like what Jesus would say here. So you don't want to find uh, yourself in that place because when the heart becomes calloused, hardened that way, nothing else can get through is the idea. So you don't want to find yourself in that way. So Jesus is calling this group to trust him. And right now they don't know how it's going to work out or when it's going to work out. But I wanted to take a few minutes as we 
talk through this to just talk about what is faith and how do you live out faith. And so um, if you'll, you'll bear with me uh, just for a few minutes in this. But I'm going to suggest that Jesus is calling his disciples to trust. Now trust or have faith, same thing. And so uh, write this down. Faith starts, faith starts with determining what God wants to do with what God wants to do. Do you remember the stories where Jesus fed the 5,000 and the 4,000? It didn't start with the resources, it started with what God wanted to do. And so here, Jesus has already taught these disciples, we traveled through, as all the way back in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, Jesus has said, for your Father knows exactly what you have need of even before you ask Him. So the disciples at this point should be saying something like, Lord, you you already say that you want to take care of us. There must be something that you want to do. Instead, they are focusing in on the situation, the the problem. And so the big question that we want to ask when we we begin a situation, we're looking at a situation, we need to ask the question of what is it that God says about my situation? You want to write that down. Faith begins by determining what God wants to do, and so we, we find out by asking the question, what does God say about my situation. God's already spoken to them about their situation. They've certainly seen. So if you're facing a situation right now and you don't know what it is that God says about your situation, but you want to trust God in that situation, one of the things that you can do is just simply write the word promises on on your connection card. Make sure we have your email address. We'll send you a Word document. A number of promises that you can apply to your situation. But it begins by saying, God, what is it that you want to do? not with God, what do we have? And that's very important. So up to this point, the disciples are dialoguing, they're rehearsing the problem. And they're rehearsing the problem as a group. So they're going back and forth and talking about that. But faith, on the other hand, begins by rehearsing God's faithfulness. They're rehearsing the problem, but it begins by rehearsing God's faithfulness. Verses 9 and 10, notice what Jesus does. He doesn't rehearse the problem. It says, do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets full you picked up? Or the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many large baskets full you picked up? How is it that you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread? And so Jesus begins immediately to just rehearse the times that God has shown up. Uh, we would say that he begins to tell some God stories. A few moments ago I told you that Cheryl and I created this Word document. One of the things that we found in our life is that when we face a situation, if we begin to go over and over the problem, we find ourselves very quickly going into the emotional pit, you might say. Am I the only one who does that? So so what we've learned in our lives is that if one of us begins to do that, Cheryl's very good at reminding, but when one of us begins to do, the other one begins to say, hey, you remember the time we were in this situation? We didn't know how it was going to work out. We knew that God called us to step out, and all of a sudden, from out of nowhere, this happened. And we began talking about the stories of God's faithfulness in our life. If you want your Christianity to go beyond just becoming nicer and nicer people with better and better information, you have to have those God stories. Those times where your circumstances said this, but His Word said this, and you made the decision, I will trust His Word over 
my circumstance. And you begin to talk about those God stories. Now, it's so important to have those God stories. One of the things that we learn in the God stories, and as you read, uh, I didn't put this as a point, but I should have. But as you read through the Old Testament, you read through the New Testament, Jesus is constantly putting his disciples in situations where they have to trust him. God rarely, if um, never, leads his people to the place of the comfort zone. Have you noticed that? When God's leading, he doesn't lead us to the place of the comfort zone. So God comes to Moses, Moses runs for his life from Egypt, and God comes to Moses and says, Moses, I got this great idea. I want you to go back to Egypt, the place that you're terrified of, then I want you to go see Pharaoh, the guy you're terrified of also, and here's what I want you to tell him. You know the response that Moses gives. Not me, you got the wrong guy. You've read the story, haven't you? If you haven't, see the movie. It, it's pretty good. So, but the idea, the old movie, not whatever it is that came out lately, with Charlton Heston. He looks like Moses, by the way. So, I mean, if I had a picture of Moses, it would look like Charlton Heston. So. And when he leaves Egypt, he's 40 years old. 40 years later, he goes back, he still looks 40 years old. That's pretty good. Back to the story. So, so you, you look at the, the stories in the Bible, they're always out of the comfort zone. God comes to Jonah and says, go to Nineveh. What does Jonah say? I'm not going there. And, and, and you know the rest of the story. In each one of the stories of the disciples, when God wants to grow their faith, he puts them in a place where their, their comfort zone is challenged. And so it always leads them out of the comfort zone, not into. Now this is important, and I want you to write this down. One of the things we learn about faith is that faith builds upon faith. Faith builds upon faith. I have to trust here in the small things. When I trust here, I see God show up. That gives me the faith to trust the next time, and the next time, and the next time. And the classic story in the Bible, we're all familiar with it, it's the story of David and Goliath. And as the story goes, what takes place is that the army comes out every day for 40 days and 40 nights. The Philistines, they send out their champion, who's a guy named Goliath. He's like 10 feet tall, six fingers, six toes. What amazes me is he really was that big, and he really did have those fingers and those toes. And he comes up and he challenges the army. They give the war cry, we're going out. Then they see Goliath, they scream, they run away, and they hide every day. Well, you know the story, David shows up and David says, I'll go out to fight him. Well, why was it that David was able to say, I will go out and fight, and the rest of the army didn't? David wasn't older, he wasn't as experienced as everybody. He was certainly, uh, he'd been in battle before, the Bible says. Uh, it wasn't that he was a little kid. Again, uh, uh, that's not what the Bible says, but... but um, he, he, he certainly didn't have the experience that Goliath had. Well, there on your outline it says, so Saul replied, you're not able to go out, this, out against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a boy, and he's been, fighting, he's been a fighting man from his youth. But David said to Saul, now, now pay attention here, everybody's telling David it can't happen. David just be, responds by telling God's stories. He says, but David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it. I struck it and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When, I tur- when it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. David said, I trusted God when the lion came out, and God helped me get through that. Then a bear came out. That was just the next step. I trusted God. Now this Philistine comes out, and it's just for me the next step, which is very different than the rest of the 
Hebrew army who all believed in God, but they never trusted God. So when Goliath showed up, instead of having the faith for a next step, they run and they hide. So here's what we learn about faith. Faith takes next steps. You want to write that down? When you and I walk with the Lord, there's always going to be a next step of faith. It's important to take steps of faith and trust Him in the small things so that we can trust Him in the bigger things. And here's the reason why. You want to trust God in the smaller things in your life because one day, one day, just like for the Hebrew army, Goliath shows up. And if you haven't been trusting God in the things that he's called you to trust him in, when Goliath shows up, like the Hebrew army, there is no faith to take on that challenge. Faith builds upon faith. I would also say, if I can speak to the parents for just a moment, there is nothing exciting when we tell our kids that our big goal as Christians is to be nicer and nicer people and be virgins when you get married. That's not a faith, and we see it in our whole world, that's being put to the next generation. But when you have God's stories, and you're able to say, here's what God has done, and your kids see God show up, that electrifies their faith and causes them to say, yes, I can believe because I've seen God do some cool things. None of us get excited about becoming nicer and nicer people. Uh, you know. So anyways, think that through. So when you believe, when you decide to step out in faith and take those next steps, one of the things that we learn is that, and you want to write this down, that faith decides to say what God says. Faith says what God says. David had a few promises about how God's people were to deal with the enemies of God's people. David believed that. The rest of the army didn't. They had not been trusting. Which is why in Amos it says, can two walk together unless they are agreed? I walk with God when I agree with God. I agree with God when I say the same thing about my situation that God is saying. The disciples on this day were not saying what God said about their situation. They were just rehearsing the problem. That's not walking in faith. Jesus begins to rehearse what it is that God has done. Another thing that we find as we bring this to a close is that faith thanks God in advance, even with no evidence. When you operate in faith, it requires that you begin to thank God when there is no evidence that God is doing something. As we've traveled through the Gospel of Matthew and all of the Gospels, one of the things that we find For instance, there's the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000. There on your outline, before there was any evidence, notice what Jesus did. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples. Jesus began giving thanks before anything took place. It wasn't until the disciples took it and began to go and do something with it that the bread began to multiply. So when you and I come to God and we find out what it is that he says about our situation and we decide to say about our situation what it is that God says, we begin to give thanks to him for the answer even before there is any evidence. That's faith. Which is why Paul would say it like this there in your outline. 
continue steadfastly in prayer, watching therein with thanksgiving. So the question is, how is God calling me to trust him in 2018? Did I forget to give the other two questions? The second one? What was the question? So I have to look at my notes. What has, what has God... How did I get this job? <laughs> what does God say about my situation? And what has God done in my life? That's the one. Okay. All right, we're not going to put this one on the internet. Hey guys, I really want to see you as individuals step into what makes Christianity exciting. Becoming nicer and nicer people is a good thing, but it's not the goal. When Jesus went into the temple and he made a whip, he was not being nicer and nicer. And many times we equate that's what it means to be Christian. Well, sometimes it means making a whip. When you want to make your Christian life exciting, it's where you come to a situation and you say, God, I'm going to believe you and your word, regardless of what the circumstances say. And just as we look at the prophecies concerning the time in which we live, what the Bible says, as something that defines who we are as a church, what also defines us as a church is not just believing in God, but it's actually believing God. And I want to encourage you to come to the place in your life where you become someone who believes in God. And when you see God show up, that's exciting. That's an exciting way to live. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we wrap this up today, um, my prayer would be for those of us who are here today, maybe heard you tell us, speak to us, begin to trust here. Lord, as we take that step, trusting your word, to trust you and see you show up. We want to have the faith to do that and the God story so that the next time you call us to trust you, we have the faith because we've already walked through and seen your faithfulness. And then, Lord, we want to continue taking those steps of faith because the truth is in all of our lives, Goliath is coming. And we want to be people who believe you and see you do great things. Father, I want to see you do great things in our lives as individuals. I want to see you do great things in the life of this church. I pray, God, that you keep us till we meet again. Make us effective for you. Help us to believe you for bigger things. It's in Jesus' name that we pray and all God's people said. God bless you guys. We'll see you next time.